This audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to Session 16, Flesh vs. Spirit, Part A, from the series, Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. This session was recorded live at Beit Sur Fellowship. Jumping into Session 16, not Session 15, that was a typo. Um, it's supposed to say Session 16, Flesh versus Spirit. Right now we're continuing our series on the Holy Spirit from where we left off. We're going through our final cluster of topics on random issues pertaining to what it means to walk in the Spirit. This, these next several sessions are basically going to try and wrap up some loose ends uh, from our series so far. So in our session today, we're going to focus on flesh versus spirit, right? Because there's, there's some places in the scripture where these two terms, flesh and spirit, are contrasted, right? They're put at odds with each other. This becomes especially important in Paul's writings, as we're going to see. So we want to try to understand what these terms mean and why they're used in antithesis to each other and what that means for us practically in our everyday lives as disciples of Yeshua. In this session, we're going to be touching on very deep concepts concerning sanctifications. Um, I know we talked about sanctification already uh, in our last session as one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, but in this session, we're going to see it from a bit of a different angle, hopefully. Anyway, so a brief outline of this session is given for you there. Uh, We'll be talking about the battle of flesh versus spirit, defining flesh. What does the Bible mean when it uses this word flesh? Uh, Greek dualism, anthropology, we'll talk more about that in a bit. That's about as far as we'll get today. Uh, But eventually I want to look at certain passages in more detail, especially Romans 7 and 8 um, and Galatians 5 and some others. So there are several places where Paul describes this battle that's being waged, right? between the flesh and the spirit. Romans 8, 5 to 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And then later in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And Galatians five sixteen to 17, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. All right, so there's this battle going on between the flesh and the Spirit, right? So a couple questions we can ask are, first of all, what does Paul mean by the term flesh. Secondly, what does Paul mean by the term spirit? Is he talking about my spirit or God's spirit? It's an important distinction there. Um, Also, what does it mean to live or walk according to the spirit, right? Paul says, you know, if you live or if you walk according to the spirit, 
you know, it's life. Whereas if you live according to the flesh, it's death, right? Like another important distinction. <laughs> and also, practically speaking, how can we make sure we're living in the spirit and not in the flesh? So these are some of the things we're going to tackle. Uh, today, we're going to focus more on the first two questions. Uh, and the next two questions we'll have to save for part two. So, okay, defining flesh. We've got, in, in Hebrew, the word for flesh is basar. And in Greek, it's the word sarks. And both words literally mean, like, your skin, right? Your, 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 your body. It can be, they can refer to meat, like meat from an animal. Um, but basically, it's, it's your physical body, right? That's what it's talking about, this word flesh. But both words can, at times can carry additional connotations, such as sometimes the word flesh is used in the Bible to mean humanity in general, right? Humans. Sometimes it's used to emphasize human weakness or frailness, you know, mankind as mortal. Uh, sometimes it's used to depict humanity in opposition to God. So there's these different ways that it's used. Uh, the NIV translates the word flesh in, at least in most of Paul's writings, as sinful nature. Uh, and we're, we'll, later we'll talk more about whether or not that's a good translation. But, so there's this idea that it has something to do with our fallen human state, right? We'll see that come up. So here's a few examples of the word flesh used with various connotations. So in Genesis 6.12, says, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Here where it says all flesh, that's another way of saying all people, right? All humans. Flesh, it's, it's used to describe humanity in general. Um, there's some other passages that emphasize the frailty or weakness of man. Isaiah 40, verse 6, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. All right, so flesh is grass. Human, human beings are, you know, here and then gone, right? Our life is fleeting compared to God and his word, which is eternal, right? That's the point Isaiah is making there. Psalm 78, 39, he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. So in these passages, flesh emphasizes the frailty of mankind, right? That we're, all we are is flesh. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, for the weapons of our, war of, of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So, here, I mean, Paul could be implying a number of things, but one thing he might be implying is that um, contrasting weapons of flesh with weapons that have divine power, right? So fleshly weapons are weak by contrast, right? Whereas uh, the arsenal that we have at our disposal through God's help is much mightier than that. So there's several passages that, dis that imply a, a mere human perspective. John 8, 15 to 16, Yeshua says, You judge according to the flesh. 
I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I do not alone, it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So when Yeshua says, you judge according to the flesh, that's, you know, what your eyes can see. It reminds me of what uh, God said to Samuel when he went to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be king. You know, God said, you're, you're looking at the, at the outside, whereas I look at the inside, I look at the heart. Uh, and so, judging according to the flesh, I, I take that to mean you know you're just you're just looking at at the outside at what you're you're looking at it from a mere human perspective, right? Second Corinthians five sixteen. Uh, from from now on, therefore, we, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Messiah according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Again, I think Paul's meaning that. You know, we judged it in a mere human way. We looked at things in a mere human way. Now we're able to see more deeply through the Spirit. Okay. Um, and then, of course, this word flesh is often used to refer to our sinful desires. Romans thirteen fourteen, put, put, put on the Lord Yeshua Messiah and make no provision for the flesh to gratis, gratify its desires. Or 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now that's interesting. That passage, it's not putting flesh and spirit at odds. It's putting flesh and soul at odds. Um, this, this battle going on. Anyway, we'll talk more about that in a bit. But it's also important to note that the word flesh is not always negative, right? John 1.14, the word became flesh. It doesn't mean that the word became sinful or anything like that. It's saying that the word became a human being. That's, what, that's all it's saying. It's not implying anything sinful, obviously, right? And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or 1 Corinthians 9.11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? That, that word material is actually, in Greek, it's um, fleshly. Things of the flesh, of the sarks, right? So, um, so, so Paul's not saying, you know, we want to reap sinful things from you. He's just saying, you know, material things, Right? Or Galatians 2.20, Paul says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, wait a second. Doesn't Paul say, Romans 8, verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So how can he say, I'm living in the flesh? Well, obviously, he's meaning different things by this word, right? We can't pick one definition of this word and say it has to apply in every single circumstances. So Paul can say, I live in the flesh, meaning that he's alive in his physical body, right? But then he can say, we're not supposed to live in the flesh, meaning we're not supposed to live in that realm of gratifying our sinful desires. Does that make sense? That we have to be careful not to be too dogmatic about a term and say it always has to mean this every single time it appears. There's, that's not how languages work, and that's not how scripture uses language. So to summarize, um, flesh is used in a variety of ways throughout the Bible. It doesn't mean the same thing in every place. Often it's used negatively, but sometimes it has no negative connotation at all.
we've looked at different ways that this word flesh is used. Um, now here are places where flesh and spirit are contrasted. Genesis 6 verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. Right? God says, and then it, he goes on to describe how he's going to bring the flood. So there's some debate as to what exactly that means, but I think it makes sense to understand God saying that the life that he's given to mankind is not going to be there forever, and uh, he is going to have an expiry date, basically. It is, it, is, it is appointed for man once to die, right? That kind of idea. Isaiah 31, verse 3. This one's an interesting one. The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. Right? So there the, the contrast is between flesh and spirit, meaning the Egyptians aren't going to help you the way they, that you think they're going to help you, right? You're trying to rely on Egypt when you should be relying on God. That's kind of the message that Isaiah is trying to bring out. Joel 2.28, it will come to pass. Afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Zechariah 4, 4, yeah, 4, verse 6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, technically, the word flesh is not in that passage, but... I think it's conveying a similar idea. Uh, I'm not going to read through all these passages. Um, I'll pick just a couple others. John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. First uh, Corinthians 3, verse 1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Messiah, because of the divisions among you, he goes on to say. And Galatians 3, 3, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Galatians 6, 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Um, yeah, well, we won't look at all the other passages now. Those last three passages there, Romans 7 to 8, Galatians 5, 13 to 26, Colossians 2 and 3. We're going to take a closer look at those later in this session because um, those are especially important. And those are passages where Paul, I believe Paul's describing in detail this battle between the flesh and the spirit. So first thing to notice is that most of the time when the Bible contrasts flesh and spirit, it's not a contrast between two natures inside of us as humans, right? It's not contrasting my, my flesh and my spirit. The contrast is between man and God, right? So especially, that comes out especially in that Isaiah passage we looked at. Look at the parallelism that goes on there. The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the contrast between flesh and spirit is a contrast between man and God, right? And... I'm going to argue that 
that is true of Romans 7 to 8 and Galatians 5 as well, that when Paul talks about living in the spirit and not in the flesh, and how these two are at war with each other, the war is not between two natures inside me, the war is between me and God. The war is, am I willing to submit to God or not? Right? So, in most of these passages, it's very clear that spirit refers to God's spirit, not man's spirit. And that's an important point that we're going to return to later. All right. Um, so let's take a bit of a rabbit trail. Is everyone okay with that? Uh, let's talk about dualism, Greek dualism. Um, and I think this is an important rabbit trail for us to follow. It's related to our topic. Because it's easy to misunderstand Paul through the eyes of Plato and other Greek philosophers. And this is exactly what happened historically, right? The Greeks saw man as composed of two inherent parts, the inner and the outer. And both are inherent within the world and within man. But there's a battle between these two parts. And... The inner man is what's important, and the outer man doesn't matter. Even though it is matter. Pardon the pun. But the inner man is what's valuable. That's, that's, it's much more valuable than the outer. So, Platonism holds that there are two worlds. The visible, material world, and the invisible, spiritual world. The visible or phenomenal world is, tension, is in tension with the invisible or conceptual world. Because it is imperfect and a source of evil, the material world is inferior to that of the spiritual. In this view, the human soul originates in the heavenly realm, from which it fell into the realm of matter. Plato likens the body to a prison for the soul. The immortal soul, pure spirit, is incarcerated in a defective body of crumbling clay. Salvation comes at death. When the soul escapes the body and soars heavenward to the invisible realm of the pure and eternal spirit, the widespread influence of Plato upon the history of Christian thought can hardly be overestimated. So it's easy to see how someone who's trained in Greek philosophy can come and start reading Paul and say, oh, I know this. He's talking about this conflict between these two worlds and between my my outer and my inner being and all these sorts of things, right? And that's what happened, right? We see um, people like Justin Martyr and the Alexandrian school, Clement of Alexandria, Origen. They sought to bring Greek philosophy into Christianity, especially the philosophy of Plato. Uh, Platonism and later Neoplatonism was an influence that continually threatened the church for, well, up till today, really. It came in heretical forms, such as Gnosticism and blatant Neoplatonism. But it also came in accepted forms, like monasticism, mysticism, and even mainstream theological formulations. So if the body is bad, and the spirit is good, then we should mistreat the body so that the spirit can be set free. Right? This is the basis for Christian asceticism, the idea that you should punish the body, uh, that physical pleasure is inherently evil, and these sorts of things, right? And that still affects 
our thinking today, right? Still affects us today. In, in Hebrew thinking, however, matter is not evil. God created everything and called it very good. Genesis 1.31. Our physical bodies are marvelous expressions of the Creator's goodness. So unlike the ancient Greek, the Hebrew viewed the world as good. Though fallen and unredeemed, it was created by a God who designed it with humanity's best interests at heart. To the Hebrew mind, a human being was a dynamic body-soul body, unity, called to serve God, his, his creator, passionately with his whole being within the physical world. So, Greek thinking sought to contrast our inner being, our spirit, with our outer being, our, our body. The biblical view, however, is that of a contrast between God and man. Spirit is not something inherent within the world and within man, but it comes only from God. Do you see the, the difference there? The Greeks saw both body and spirit are part of you. And to find the spirit, you, you search inside you to find it, right? Whereas in the Bible, the contrast is between us and God. To find God, we don't search inside of us. Right? This affects how we understand the Holy Spirit. To get to the Holy Spirit, we don't get there by trying to go deeper inside. It's, now, the Holy Spirit will come and dwell within us, but it comes from outside of us. It's not something inherent within us. Also, God does not value our inner being more than our outer being. God doesn't love our souls more than our bodies. Have you ever thought about that? God loves us, you know, God loves you. He loves the whole you, not just your soul. He loves your body too. Why do you think he wants to raise it from the dead? After we die, God's still not done with our bodies. So in Genesis 2, 7, God made Adam a living being, a nefesh chaya, a body with a soul in it, with life in it, Right? So, to a Hebraic mind, the soul without the body is just as useless as the body without the soul. You need, you need them both together to have a real human being. And that's why the early believers were so adamant in their belief in a, a literal resurrection of the dead. That God still has a purpose for our bodies, even after death. So, Greek thinking makes a clear dis you know, this, this distinction between the physical world and the spiritual or the non-physical world, right? Between sacred and secular. But in contrast, in the Hebrew mind, everything is theological. That is, Hebrews make no distinction between the sacred and secular areas of life. They see all life as a unity. It is all God's domain. He has a stake in all that comes to pass, whether trials or joys, and human beings have an awareness of God in all that they do. So, according to scripture, everything we do should be in service of God and to his glory. Nothing's outside of that domain of service to God. So, this is important because when we read, especially when we're reading Paul, and he uses this term, spiritual. He describes something as spiritual. Our tendency is to assume that spiritual means non-physical. That's our tendency, right? Uh, here's a quote from Andrew Pitts. 
Paul's use, uh, Paul uses the adjective pneumatikos in his letters 24 times. Pneumatikos means spiritual, right? So he uses this adjective, spiritual, 24 times, and never, so far as I can tell, in a context that requires a metaphysical sense referring to immateriality of some kind. Immateriality, meaning non-physical, right? So Paul never means non-physical when he uses this, this term. He tends to use it to describe moral behavior, and he gives some references there, or activity originating with or in some way connected to God's spirit. And there's some more references. It does not seem to be, for Paul, a, fundamental, a fundamentally metaphysical term. Ephesians 1, 3 and 6, 12 speak of a pneumatikos realm that may seem close to the metaphysical use of the term, but probably comments on the realm where spirits, good and evil, and entities slash events originating with or connected to God's spirit dwell. The closest parallel to this kind of usage is found in 1 Corinthians 9, 13, where Paul employs pneumatikos in opposition to sarkika. Sarkika means fleshly. So we've got spiritual and fleshly. Paul had sowed spiritually, and now he hoped to reap materially from the Corinthians. The contrast, however, is not between two material substances, but two economies, gods and humans. Does all that make sense? So, in other words, for us to be spiritual doesn't mean we have to denigrate our physical bodies or avoid physical pleasure, right? To be spiritual doesn't mean to be non-physical. Even if that were possible, that's not what it means, right? To be spiritual means to be in line with God's spirit, right? So everything we do should be spiritual. It's, it's easy for us to fall into the thinking that the only time I'm spiritual is when I'm in an emotionally charged worship service or intense prayer or sacrificial you know, serving of others, that, you know, that's when I'm spiritual. But the rest of the time, you know, I get up, I go to work, I eat, I sleep. That's not spiritual. But that's not true. Everything that we do should be spiritual and holy. All the mundane stuff that we do, like eating and drinking and sleeping and cleaning the house and taking care of our kids and all that stuff, right? All this stuff should be holy, so to sum up, when Paul uses the term flesh to describe our rebellious, sinful nature, he's not denigrating our, our physical existence. The Bible doesn't support this dualistic view of the universe, that matter is evil and non-physical is good. Instead, we're called to submit our entire being to God and to his will. We're called to love him with all our heart, soul, and strength. Right? So our whole being loves God, not just our, our soul. All right, let's go on another rabbit trail. Uh, let's talk about anthropology, biblical anthropology. Theo theological anthropology is a branch of theology that deals with the nature of man as described in the Bible. This is not to be confused with the secular uh, anthropology, which is a branch of social science and deals with the study of humans and human behavior in societies. That's, that's something different. Use the same word, but those are two different fields of study. So in, in, in theological anthropology, uh, one of the big questions that we're asking is, 
according to the Bible, what are we made of? How, you know, how many parts are there to our being? How many of you have been told that the Bible teaches two components to a, he- to a human being, your body and your soul? Has anyone been taught that? Everyone is made up of two parts, a body and a soul. Yeah. How many people have been told that the Bible teaches three parts to a human being, your body, your soul, and your spirit? Yeah, probably a lot of us have been taught that as well, right? Maybe some of us have been taught both. And did you know that this is a debate that's been raging for approximately 2,000 years? How many, how many parts are there in us? I mean, you'd think we'd have figured it out by now. But this, yeah, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, and I'm not going to presume to solve the debate or anything like that, but I think it's good for us to at least put it on the table and see what the options are. So there's, there's three main viewpoints when it comes to how many parts are there in us. There's the bipartite view, which means there's two, two parts in you, a body and a soul. There's the tripartite view, which means there's three parts, a body, a soul, and a spirit. And there's monism. We'll talk more about that in a second. That's the idea that there's only one part in you somehow. Not exactly, but we'll get to that. So bipartite means that a human being is composed of two distinct parts, a body and a soul. And this is not the same as Greek dualism that we were just talking about, right? Uh, Greek dualism sees these two components of a human as in perpetual conflict with the mind constantly seeking escape from the body. That's not what we're talking about. Bipartite uh, theology is not exactly the same as that. So in the bipartite view, your soul and your spirit are really just two different words for the same thing. Everyone's got a body and everyone's got this inner part of them that's sometimes referred to as the soul, sometimes referred to as the spirit, sometimes referred to as your heart, uh, your mind. Like there's all these different terms the Bible uses, right? And historically, this has been um, the, at least in some areas of Christianity, this has been considered the mainstream Christian viewpoint is that uh, there's two parts to you. And so that's what Augustine, John Calvin, uh, Gordon Clark, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, among many others, these are some of the proponents of the bipartite view. Uh, the, the tripartite view of man, however, sees a, a distinction between soul and spirit. And they say those are two different things. They're completely different. Everyone's got a body, of course. Everyone's got a soul. But everyone also has this spirit. And the, and the soul and the spirit are different. And this view was held by many of the church fathers before Augustine. Uh, so Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Eusebius, among many others. Other proponents include uh, possibly Martin Luther. Um, it's, I'm a little unclear as to exactly what Martin Luther's position was. There are places where he speaks of three parts to humans, but other places where it, he seems like He's supporting a bipartite view. Anyway, further study. <laughs> uh, Soren Kierkegaard, Franz Dalich, Andrew Murray, C.I. Schofield, F.B. Meyer, Louis Berry Schaefer, Evan Roberts, Arthur W. Pink, Watchman Nee. Anyone ever seen the trilogy by Watchman Nee called The Spiritual Man, where he goes through body, soul, and spirit and describes how 
man is made up of these three parts. He was one of the people that popularized that. So what exactly is the difference then between your soul and your spirit? Um, does anyone have any suggestions on this view? How would, how, would you, how would you distinguish your soul from your spirit? What's the difference? Personality versus your thoughts? Yeah. And maybe something that different proponents describe differently. I know one way I've heard it described is that your, your soul is like, that's, that's yourself. That's the you that you're conscious of. Whereas your spirit, well, that's the part of you that connects with God. And your spirit kind of remains dormant until you become a believer. And then your spirit comes to life and it's like, it's a direct connection with God's spirit. Uh, that, that's one explanation I heard. So, yeah. But you have to admit, it, it is a little, um, it is difficult to be real adamant about the difference between soul and spirit. Good question. Which is the part that lives forever? Um, I'm not exactly sure. You'd have to, I, I, I don't know if there's different answers. I know that classically the church has held to the belief in uh, an immortal soul that every human being has within them an immortal soul. So your body's going to die, but your soul can never die. I don't know if certain tripartite proponents try to separate that out between your soul and your spirit. I'm not sure. Anyway, it's a good question. So, and I've, I've heard people argue for both sides. I've actually heard people argue for both sides on the basis of Greek philosophy. And this is, this is how the argument goes. So proponents of the tripartite view, I've heard say that, well, bipartitism is based on Greek philosophy. You know, that Greek dualism and stuff like that. The Greeks, they could only see two parts in a human, but the real Hebraic view is three parts. And that's actually not exactly true because... Plato advocated three parts to a human, the nous, which is your mind, the psyche, the soul, and the soma, which is the body. So uh, now it's true that a lot of Greek thinking is based on two parts to a human, the visible and invisible kind of thing, but, but there is some tripartite ideas in Greek philosophy too. Anyway, you can't, you can't appeal to Greek philosophy to prove one or the other by saying, oh, well, you're just into Greek philosophy. You can't be right. Because you could find a basis for both <laughs> in Greek philosophy, right? Okay. But then there's also the third viewpoint, which we haven't talked about yet, uh, monism or holism, right? Like a holistic approach. Uh, and this position holds that a human being is composed of a unity that cannot be divided up. Body and soul are not separate components, but rather two facets of a united whole. They're two sides to one coin. And this is the official stance of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Uh, they, that's why, I don't know if you've heard of the doctrine of soul sleep. Seventh-day Adventists believe that when you die, your soul is not conscious. Uh, because they would say that Consciousness only can be 
there when your body and your soul are united. As soon as you separate them, both lose consciousness. So they argue that when you're dead, you're, you're actually not conscious during that time. You're asleep, soul sleep, right? So, so that's why they, they hold to this stance. That's where that, that theology comes from. Um, in my opinion, this is really just a variation on the Bart, bipartite view. Uh, because monism still sees body and soul as two components of a human being. It simply argues that they can't be effectively separated. Which, I mean, I think most bipartite people would say, well, yeah, technically. <laughs> it's not very effective to separate them. But, but they also, uh, in, as far as I understand, the monistic viewpoint sees no distinction between soul and spirit. Your soul and your spirit are the same thing. Uh, so I kind of look at it as just bipartitism with a little nuanced emphasis. But anyway, maybe people who are fierce, uh, fierce monists would be really angry at me right now. All right, so what's, what does the Bible say? <laughs> let's, let's solve this debate, shall we? <laughs> Let's look at what the Bible says. I don't know. I, I don't think we can solve this debate, and it's okay if we disagree on this, in my opinion. But So there are places in the Bible where soul and spirit are clearly used as synonyms. Here's some examples. Job 7.11, Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. It's Hebrew parallelism, right? You say something, and then you say it again using different words. So spirit and soul are the same thing in that, in that verse, right? Does that make sense? Uh, Isaiah 26, verse 9. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. So again, we see the same parallelism. Spirit and soul are put in parallel to each other. But there's also places where they appear to be used distinctly. Here's the two main examples. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit soul, and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Yeshua Messiah. There you've got all three, right? Spirit and soul and body. And then again in Hebrews 4.12 for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So there, the implication, at least those who advocate for the tripartite view, would say, see, human, uh, you know, the, from the fleshly perspective, from the mere human perspective, people only see your inner being as just your soul slash spirit. They don't see a distinction between your soul and your spirit. But through God's word, you're able to pierce that distinction and find out, oh, there actually is a difference. God's word teaches us what the difference is between soul and spirit. That's, you know, you could paraphrase it that way if you were advocating that view. So, of course, both sides have ways of explaining around these kinds of passages, right? Um, those who are bipartites would argue that, well, Paul is using a hendiadis. Does anyone 
know what the word hendiodis is? means you're using two words to say the same thing. Like in English, when we say part and parcel, well, how many, you know, if something is part and parcel of something else, does that mean that it's two things of something else? Well, no, you're using, you're using two words. It's an it's a expression, right? It's a figure of speech. Soul and spirit, it's just a, he's, he's just talking about all of, all of the inner you, all of the inner part of you. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Um, and then again, in Hebrews 4.12, it says, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and the division of spirit, not dividing between them, but discerning souls and discerning spirits. Maybe. Maybe that's another way of understanding it, right? Anyway. So there, I mean, you can, the point is that you could argue back and forth and never come up with a perfect solution, right? And the problem is that both in Hebrew and in Greek, there are several different words for the inner and outer, outer being of a person, and it's impossible to argue a consistent definition for each of those words based on the Bible alone. And... So to make a consistent argument, you have to appeal to sources other than the Bible at some point, or use the Bible allegorically to make your point, or things like that, right? Um, on the last page of your handout that I gave you, there's this chart that has the semantic range of Hebrew terms involving spirit and soul. And what I was intending to do with this chart is just give a visual for how there's all these different words that are used. There's the word ruach, which means spirit. There's also the word neshama, which means spirit. There's the word nefesh, which is usually translated soul. There's lev, which is your heart. There's chaya, which is life. There, there's all these different words, right? And they're all, they all kind of overlap in meaning, but they have different emphases shall we say, right? So to argue that, well, your nefesh is always this part of you, but your neshama is always this part of you, and they're different, the problem is the Hebrew Bible doesn't always honor those differences that we try to impose on it, right? There are times when neshama means your inner being. There's times when nefesh means your inner being. There's times when neshama means your life force. There's times when nefesh means your life force. There's times when ruach means your, nef your, your life force. There are some differences, though. Nishama is almost never, <laughs> there's, there's one or two places where it is, but it's almost never used of animals. Whereas nefesh is often used of animals and people, right? That so, so if, we, if we want to insist on translating it soul, we would say, well, animals have a soul too, according to the Bible. Animals have a nefesh. All the Bible means by that is that they're alive, right? Because the word nefesh means it's your life force, right? You're breathing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, nefesh refers to breath. Neshama also refers to breath. Ruach also refers to breath, right? Chaya, life refers to breath as well, in a sense, but a chaya can also mean a beast. So, for example, the, the four chayot, the four living creatures around the throne, literally chayot is, in a lot of places, it just means 
animals or beasts, creatures, right? So the beasts of the field, that phrase is, is chaya or chayot, that word for beasts. So it can mean animals, nefesh can refer to animals. Ruach, the one, the one distinction is that the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, is only, only the term ruach is used for God's Spirit. Neshama never means God's Spirit, right? Nefesh never means God's Spirit. Lev never means God's Spirit. Only ruach, right? And there's other words like your, your innards, your, your yetzer, your, your inclination or, or formation, your thoughts, your decisions. Uh, kilya, your kidneys. First, your inner being, your emotions. Your mea, your bowels. Is your, your, your emotions, your inner, your inner being. So, yeah, there's... The point with this is that you can't make an argument for a clear-cut distinction. And, and we could, I didn't do a chart with all the Greek words, but I supplied a bunch of Greek words for you there in your handout. Pneuma, psuche, cardia, nous. Now, there's all these different words, just like in Hebrew, that overlap in meaning, that refer to our inner being. So here's another quote from Marvin Wilson. He says, Hebrew is not a precise analytical language prone to conveying subtle nuances of meaning. The nature of Hebrew is to paint verbal pictures with broad strokes of the brush. The Hebrew authors of scripture were not so much interested in the fine details and harmonious pattern of what is painted as they were with the picture as a whole. Theirs was, a pri was primarily a description of what the eye sees rather than what the mind speculates. In brief, the whole world is a mystery which the Hebrew neither comprehends nor thoroughly investigates. All this to say that it's hard to make a consistent argument about these things, right? I, can, I could argue that you have these three parts, your goof, your body, your nefesh, your soul, and your neshama, your spirit, and that these are all distinct, but... But then you're always going to find exceptions. You're always going to find passages in the Bible where, oh, wait, they used the word neshama wrong there. Or they used the word nefesh wrong there. That, they must not have known my theory, <laughs> right? So what do you do with that then, right? So I guess the point is that we have to be careful not to pound the pulpit too much on this kind of stuff. That's the point I'm trying to make. God made us, and he knows us inside and out, and he wants to have fellowship with us, which is why he sent his son, who died for us, and rose again, and it's, which is why he sent his spirit to dwell within us. Right? And so, going back to the point made earlier, in this battle that we're in, between the flesh and the spirit, it's not a battle between different entities inside me, right? It's not like, you know, the good angel and the bad angel are both inside me. In the biblical view, I'm the bad angel. God's the good, you know, the, he's our conscience, right? He's the one that's telling us to do the good thing. And so the question is, am I willing to submit to God? Am I willing to submit to his plans, to his intentions, to his spirit? So... We'll take that up more next time and dive into some passages that talk more about that. But uh, yeah, let's just close with a word of prayer.
Thank you, Father, for your word, and thank you that your word is true, that we can trust it with all our hearts. Thank you that you have sent your spirit to dwell within us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to submit our lives to your plans and to your thoughts and intentions for us. And be with us as we go from here and discuss these things more together. And we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.